the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. So today on the show, it is about a new medical facility in Port Elizabeth. It's been opened by Aspen Pharmacare and it's worth... One billion rand, let me just say it again. And it's created or will create about 500 jobs. And it will produce various oncology products used to treat cancers. It will also produce a high-potency molecule used to prevent organ rejection and organ transplants. It is also aimed at providing these products at an affordable price. That all sounds pretty good. Yeah. I like medicine to help people in need. Very, very cool. Aspen is actually Africa's biggest maker of pharmaceuticals, which you may or may not know. And they have operations in more than 150 countries. So this particular facility is going to pump out about 3.6 billion tablets a year and package about 3 million bottles a month. And all of this production will start in June. Wow, wow, wow. That's a lot of production. Like, June is now, basically. This actually uh, is a relocation of production, which normally happens in other countries, including Europe. And 90% of these meds will actually be exported. Well, it's still great because even though we won't be consuming all of those meds, at least, you know, there's job creation, there's, um, you know, a concentration here. And it got me thinking about pharmaceuticals. It's obviously quite easy to just pop a pill. Your pain might go away if it's a headache or something not that serious. But how have you thought about this level? Just everything that goes into making that one little that one little like panado that you pop i never really think about such i'm just like i need this headache to go away panado come to me bam yeah Done. but according to forbes the average drug development by a major pharmaceutical company costs at least at least four billion dollars and it can be as much as 11 billion dollars to bring it to the market sure plus this whole process takes a lot of time we're looking at about 10 years for a new med for new medicine to complete its journey from initial discovery to the marketplace and the clinical trials alone take about six to seven years on average it's a long time if you think about yes it's going to help a lot of people but still over a decade until that little, little pill is, you know, safe to use. They know what all those side effects are. You know, all that little writing on the little, what do you call it? The insert that, that nobody, <laughs> nobody no reads. I actually read those things because I get psyched out about the side effects of pills. So I, I never want to not know what's going on when I'm taking this pill. Okay, you are one of the like 2% of people that do that. <laughs> I'm just going to guess a number there. But we do want to know a little bit about where do our pills come from? How does this whole process of medicine work? So that's what we are going to be looking at in our main story on the show today. Then in our unscience, researchers are suggesting that humans start walking like penguins. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, science. <laughs> Another odd thing. Hey, I think waddling in penguins and in humans is hilarious. So I support this. I don't even know what it's for. I support it. I'm there. 
<laughs> but then later on the show, our scientist behind the sciences, Dr. Rudolf Berger, we will be talking about all things atmospherical and meteorological science, especially cloud seeding. If you didn't know that you can make the clouds rain through science, you'll want to listen to that. Before all of that, we will get into our science news, of course. And don't forget to share your stories with us on our social media, on Facebook as VowFM, and you can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag science inside, or you can send your messages to us on our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. Let's get into the show and let's kick it all off with our science news. This week's science headline. Level, what do you have for us? Okay, today we have a gene that prevents neurodegenerative diseases from occurring in your brain. Okay, sounds good. Yes, it is actually. And today my story is from the sciencedaily.com. So, Professor Suzanne Ackerman and her, col- and her colleagues from the University of California, San Diego, have discovered a gene that helps prevent the buildup of harmful proteins in one's body or brain. This gene is called ANKRD16. I'm sure we've all heard of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And these diseases, or these disor- disorders rather, are caused by the buildup of those harmful proteins. Okay, that makes sense. And this gene that has a name straight out of Star Wars. <laughs> like, that could be the new robot in Star Wars. I know, right? right? ANKRD16. Yep, right. <laughs> How does this gene work? Okay, so this gene rescues neurons called Parkinson's cells from their death. And their death is actually caused by the failure in correction of information transfer from the gene to the <laughs> proteins. An abnormal level of ANKRD16 results in an incorrect activation of amino acid serine triggered by the Purkinje cells. This then causes amino acid serine to incorporate incorrectly with the proteins, resulting in protein accumulation. Okay. So if you have high levels of this gene, you might prevent these disorders. But what happens if your levels are too low? Okay. This is according to tests uh, ran on rats. So it hasn't been done on humans, but these low levels can lead to a widespread buildup of protein and eventually neuronal death. So far, researchers have identified a few of these modified genes, ANKRD16 being one of them. This is a sign of hope, though that scientists will establish a better understanding of the underlying pathology uh, underlying pathology of neurodegenerative diseases and how they actually develop in humans. So I guess we can be a little bit optimistic about the future in neurological sciences and the disorders. I mean, every time we do this, I say we, every time scientists do this kind of gene work, it sounds like such a small finding, but it can start a whole other um, you know process of, of finding answers that we wouldn't have known um, before and hopefully finding finding bigger and better solutions to problems like Alzheimer's exactly. it's, it's like Very a good. positive domino effect exactly yeah 
so Lebo, my story today is not quite that life-changing, <laughs> but it has the internet and even our office up in arms. But before I get into it, it is this particular story that I'll be talking about is all over the internet. It was made viral by a YouTuber and blogger called Chloe Feltman and covered by all kinds of outlets, including Wired and ASAP Science. But before I get into it, do you remember the dress? That dress, the two color, four color actually dress. <laughs> there were four colors involved. Yeah, yeah. If you don't remember listening at home, it was a picture of a dress that some people saw as gold and white. That was me when I looked at it, gold and white all the way. And other people saw it as blue and black. I don't know what you saw. At some points, I did see blue and black, and at some points, I did see white and gold. Okay, so you were just b both teams yes. all over that dress. So this photograph became a viral internet sensation in 2015, and the original color actually was blue and black, but the photograph was overexposed and washed out. So basically, the internet had discovered something that neuroscientists and vision scientists had been looking into for a while, namely that there are differences in human color perception. Now, I have a new controversy for you, Lebo, but this time it's an audio clip where people are hearing either the word Yanni or the word Laurel. On the same clip? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. So, <laughs> Katie Hetzel is a teenager who is learning words on a vocabulary website just for her high school. And one of the clips was the word Laurel. But she heard it as Yanni. So, a discussion broke out in her class, then the internet, and now it's all over the place. Ellen has covered it, like you name it. They have, they have played this for their audiences. So, I thought even though it's been on the internet for a couple of days... Let's let's do this here right now and settle it at yeah. least <laughs> at least for the science inside. So um, we are going to we are going to play the clip and everybody in studio with me here. All of our producers are going to show us whether they hear Yanni or Laurel. Um, and for you listening at home, why don't you send us a WhatsApp or a tweet? Let us know what you hear, and I will tell you the science just now. But here is the clip. Laurel. Laurel. Okay, let's see some votes um, here in the studio. I've got to say I am very, very surprised because up till now I have almost always heard Yanni. I just heard Laurel. I also heard Laurel. You heard Laurel? <laughs> okay, I see some Laurels, but I also see some Yannis. So, very weirdly enough, it seems to be that everybody in our live studio heard Laurel, while everyone in the production studio heard Yanni, which is weird. Hmm. Very, What's very strong. <laughs> it's not just us, it is all over the world. And of course, we are a science show, so we wanted to find out the science, right? Yes, find out how it works. Yeah, not just, you know, argue about this and get into a fist fight, <laughs> which I'm sure some people were ready to do. So first of all, there's something called priming, which I just did with you. Your brain is prepared to hear one of those two words because I told you the options. If I hadn't said Yanni or Laurel, your brain might have heard a weird other combination of those sounds or something that sounds vaguely like it, but it because it didn't have any options. But I had given you some, right? 
Then, very importantly, these two words have similar sound profiles. So if you were to look at them on a sound editing program, for instance, they would look quite similar. But this clip is distorted. So there are lots of high frequencies in, in this clip. And it depends on what you personally may be able to hear. So let me just explain this a little bit more. The sound of laurel, so that law, okay. is a low frequency. But the sound of ya has many high frequencies. So you take this original clip, which is laurel, but it's distorted. So there are high frequencies added to it. Now, some brains on some devices hear this sound and their brain picks up all of this high frequency that um, information that actually isn't there, right? It's only on this particular distortion. Okay. And instead of hearing law, it has a similar sound profile, but with higher frequencies, giving it yani. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So it just depends on you, basically. Well, no, because some people hear yani sometimes and laurel other times. So I have heard both yani and laurel over the last few days, depending on what device I'm on, depending on even, you know, just the particular day, whatever it might be. My brain has even switched between the two on the same track at the same, like in the same sort of listening. Oh, wow. So there's a assistant professor at Boston University and he calls this, his name is Tyler Parashione, and he says this is a bi-stable illusion because your brain basically jumps between these two stable options. But we still don't know why a brain would suddenly decide to do this. So it does also depend on other things like whether you are older because older people don't quite hear the higher frequency. So they will be more likely to hear laurel. Okay, I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> so maybe you and I have just aged a lot. It also does, of course, depend on your particular device. So maybe if you're listening at home now, you've actually heard something different than what you've heard if you've listened on your earphones. Oh, wow. So it's an illusion at the end of the day. Yes, exactly. So the other cool thing about this auditory illusion is whether you hear a voice that is more male or more female. So since men tend to have lower pitch voices and longer vocal tracks, if you're hearing laurel, you're more likely to think that it's a man who's saying it. But the shorter and higher yani sound that some people are hearing may resemble a woman's pitch more. Oh my gosh. It's the dress <laughs> for radio, you guys. Wow, wow, wow. So if you now start a fight with somebody about the Laurel or Yanni thing, at least at least I've fueled your fight with some good science. Exactly. I've got some solid facts to lay down. <laughs> you are on the science side where we love science about crazy things, but also about some serious things. So next up, we get into our main story of the day. The journey your medicine goes through from headache pills to life-saving drugs. We will talk about how an idea becomes a packet on your shelf. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebo Madisha. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. But let's get into our main story for the day. Yes, today we're talking about Aspen. 
And Aspen Pharmacare has opened a new facility in Port Elizabeth worth 1 billion rand. It may be simple popping a pill for a headache or whatever, but the procedure behind it is definitely not straightforward or quick at all. Because of this news story, we are going to take a more general look today into but the behind the scenes of your medicine whatever that medicine might be and we want to look at the process from a to b from idea to shelf where does this medicine come from because it's not just somebody who's like mixing together some like small yana herbs hoping that it will <laughs> help you like there is a quite a quite a thorough and quite a long scientific process here and the drug development process really starts with studying the disease to find out what the causes and targets are and then you say okay we're developing this new drug compound and we think it's going to effectively fight this particular disease let's start this process with professor kelly chipale the chair in drug development at the department of chemistry at the university of cape town just explaining how the process begins in terms of researching and creating the drug the process of discovering and developing um, a drug cause is to understand what is the nature of the disease, what, is, what has caused it. The next stage that we move to is what we call a target-based approach. If that, we identified that target, what we then have to do is to validation of the target. So we can clone, we can express that protein, that target, and we can purify it which then allows us in the laboratory to develop an assay or a test uh, whereby we can find the chemicals that what one day become drugs or medicine. And then from there, we start then optimizing those inhibitors for efficacy and safety. Only then do we commence human clinical trials. Okay, so once the possible drug is developed, it needs to get tested, right? Yes. Before human trials, there's preclinical trials, which, yes, means animal trials. I know we hear about this a lot, but that is the first step to make sure that the drug is safe. I know it's required, but is it... But I still feel sorry for the little critters, like, shame, man. Yeah, every time we cover this in the news, my, like, little vegetarian heart gets a little bit sore. <laughs> but it is part of the process, yes. And thankfully, there are quite a lot of animal rights regulations in place around this. We go now to Dr. Nicola Lister, the Chief Scientific Officer at Novartis Southern Africa. Animal tests are still required from a drug testing perspective. But having said that, there is a lot of regulation and very strict laws in place that govern the types of animals that, that can be used and how many animals can be used. So there really is a drive uh, towards reducing the number of animals um, that, that are used in, in preclinical testing and, and certainly the smaller animals, so rats, mice, those sort of animals are, are, would be used more readily than, than, than larger animals. So they are very aware of it, thankfully, and even though it is still required, there are lots of sort of legalities and regulations around animal testing, at least for medical drugs. 
But now it's time for our medicine to be tested on real live humans. Clinical trials are, of course, very carefully designed to look at the risks and side effects of a particular drug. And we're being very general here. It very much depends on what kind of drug it is, whether it's a new drug or a old drug, just what's happening in general. But there are usually four different phases, starting with a small number of healthy volunteers. The volunteers are given small doses of the drug treatment to study the general safety of this new medicine. These are called clinical epidemiology studies where we're looking at pharmacoeconomics and pharmacodynamics and that's really is looking at what the drug does to the body and what the body does to the drug in a, in a healthy volunteer. We then can start testing in the target patient population. So for example, if we're trying a drug to lower high blood pressure, for example, um, we would then give the drug to a small group of, of people who actually have high blood pressure to see if the drug works and also to see which is the best dose of the drug. And that's called a phase two clinical trial. Okay, so after phase two, you have a good idea of whether the drug is safe or not, if it's working somewhat, and you know how much to give to patients. Yeah. Are, are you done after that? Not quite yet. So now the really big stuff starts. Phase three and four is where it goes out to a large number of patients and the side effects are monitored and just generally how much the drug works. We're talking often, you know, thousands of you know a thousand three thousand five thousand whatever it might be patients around the world that it gets tested on just to make sure that different ethnicities different kind of people different ages all kinds of things uh, use this drug before it gets on the market because this whole process obviously needs to be very carefully monitored that being said sometimes the drug can be compared to the available drug on the market and the new drug may then be accepted if it has a greater effect than the available one so this of course isn't just for new drugs so most of the global drug development in the world happens by big multinationals and they then use clinical patients from all over as i said including trials in south africa now those are typically you know the trials that you hear about that include thousands of patients across the world in multiple different centers um, and they will take the drug for a predetermined period of time to see, um, you know, what the safety and efficacy profile of this drug is. And depending, again, you know, what, what the product is and what the regulators require from a data perspective, um, that drug will then go on to be registered. So now you have made it, you have decided this is your particular medicine that you want to put to market and you have to register it. This usually happens at the American FDA, the Food and Drug Association, and probably the European Medicines Authority first and then trickles down around the world to other regulators. Oh, that's why we're always getting medicines later than every other country in the world. Yes, that's one of the reasons, because we're not. We're not the big guns. So it sort of takes a while to register here. You do have to submit quite a lot of documents. It includes every little piece of data and evidence from the entire process, from research all the way through preclinical trials and then phases one to four. The different committees then decide on everything from the statistical power to the clinical evidence, all kinds of things. And if everything goes well and they say, yes, this is convincing, then the company gets a registration for the drug. 
but before it goes to market, you still need a patent or at least the right to own this particular medicine. I asked Alison Dyer, a consultant on intellectual property and patenting for Spur and Fisher about this. Generally, uh, a patent application on a drug is filed very early on in the life of the drug, so probably before anyone knows, in fact, which is going to be the active ingredient that's going to work. The patent application will be filed. It um, then proceeds through a prosecution process in the various patent offices of the world, some of which are examination patent offices where they will do searches to determine what was known before this invention and therefore the value of the invention. At the end of this process, patents will be granted and thereafter the patents will provide the protection for the drug for the life of the patent, which is in generally 20 years from date of application till expiry. I do have to explain that this original patent is often about a particular molecule compound, but there are various other kinds of patents, such as a new use of an old pharmaceutical. We don't have time to go into this fully. There could be a whole story just about the patenting system in South Africa, but let me just say there have been several problems with the medical patent system, patenting system here that just mean that very often people can't access what they want to or what they need at affordable rates and it's it is a process but still there are quite a lot of problems and I encourage you to read up about it on your own but unfortunately just for the sake of time I can't quite go into this but okay let's say everything goes well you patent it that's the next step and so once your medicine I mean but once the medicine uh, thingy has covered all these challenges and it's crossed all these hurdles, it needs to make it to the shelves, right? Yes. So you now have it, you have your pole, you've chosen the color. I'm kidding. But everything <laughs> is done. That is the last step. Let's go back to Dr. Lister. We then go through a process of um, of getting drug into the country, basically. So there would be a lot of different uh, players within within the pharmaceutical company. Um, the regulatory guys would make sure that, um, you know, the product label um, was all up to scratch um, and as per what has been approved by the local regulator, there's packaging and artwork of the product. There is the supply chain management who would need to, you know, order the drug from the, the overseas factories. And South African rules dictate that um, we have to quarantine the product and do quality testing on, on the post-importation batch just to make sure that none of the, the elements of the drug have changed in its route to South Africa. And only once we get that clearance can we then send to the wholesalers and that's where pharmacies can order the product. Okay, cool. Now I can go get the meds. Uh, yes, te- <laughs> technically yes, but obviously a lot of these drugs still have to be um, prescribed by a doctor. So if it's first in class, which means that it's a new kind of medicine, they have to do quite a lot of a com- campaign around it, making sure that doctors understand the research, what this particular drug does that's new or different. They have to explain when and how and what kind of side effects, all that stuff so that your doctor is aware of it, right? And they might have to work with pharmacies and individuals, just making sure that it's not just sitting on the shelves where people can actually access it. But once it's out on the shelves, the scientists 
don't sleep on it, they actually still keep an eye on this medicine just to make sure that once it's out there, it's still safe. Here's Professor Chibale again. Pharmacovigilance is a very important part of the studies when a, market, a drug is given to people and they think we have to report adverse drug reactions that were never picked up in the clinical trials. And of course, if those things are investigated and they become serious, then the medicine could be withdrawn. So that is the whole process from idea to shelf. And it can take well over a decade from this initial idea to a product that you and I can buy. Our local regulator alone can take between five and six years. Oh my gosh, that is a very long time. I do have to say that sometimes the trials are cut short, which is um, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. So if it's very clear that a drug is not working at all, there's no real point in them continuing. And if it's really clear that the drug is working amazingly well in comparison to a previous treatment, they might also cut it short and say, you know, go for it. So those are two factors that come into it. But most of the time it takes quite a while, especially for the formal registration process. And that's the problem because meanwhile, there are patients all over the world that desperately would like, and by like, I mean desperately need these, this medication. And, you know, there are things being done just trying to get this process to go faster. Here's Dr. Lister again. We need to do things better. We need to get faster. You know, there's a lot of emphasis at the moment, specifically trying to get the, you know, the regulatory process um, speeded up. But from a research development perspective, um, we're now in an era where we are using um, data and digital technologies to our advantage. There's so many very smart people out there that are developing ways and means of speeding up the way, you know, potential drug candidates are, are processed by artificial intelligence and then coming up with potential candidates that have a much higher probability of success than they ever did in the past. Because in the past, we've perhaps used sort of quite antiquated systems or we've relied on, on, on people to, you know, go through the data and, and, and make those decisions. We have so much data available that if we could just plug a certain algorithm into it, it could then make those decisions for us and speed up the whole process. The process is still going to take quite a while, but it's pretty great that AI can help get the medicine to patients sooner, at least hopefully in the future. And then, you know, companies like Aspen Pharmacare can pump out these drugs that are saving lives and, you know, curing headaches everywhere. Yes, and hopefully if you're not a big shot country, they'll try and quicken this process too for you. (laughs) So I do have to tell you, just finishing this off level, Obviously, we spoke a lot about the clinical trials and um, how many people around the world are involved in this. And do you remember that part where healthy participants help check that things are safe? Yes. So just between you, me and the rest of our listeners, I may have been one of these human (laughs) guinea pigs in my time. Oh, wow. So you just go and then they shoot you up with whatever they have on trial and then hopefully you don't die. (laughs) (laughs) That is the 
and that is not exactly how it works. <laughs> but in in theory, yes. So while I was a student, I made some good money off of um, being a pharmaceutical testing subject. Okay, I'm I'm down for this. Contacts, everything. I'm here for You're it. <laughs> so so I have got a quite a good a good memory when it comes to these things, and I hope. Yeah, I hope the things that I tested one day helped somebody. With um, I, I was specifically involved in in um, eczema creams and and skin skin creams, testing them on healthy individuals. So I hope somewhere out there, if you suffer of eczema, I might have helped that medicine get on the shelf for you. Hopefully, and hopefully nothing actually happened to you. No, like no side no. effects. Nothing. No, I okay. think I think um, being weird is is not an effect of that. That was there <laughs> beforehand. <laughs> you are still listening to the science inside, and up next we do get into more weird science with our feature unscience. This is the science inside with Elna. Okay, nerds, it's time for Unscience, the little bit of the show where we look at the stranger side of research. It's where we have a peek at the weird and wonderful side of what scientists spend a lot of time, effort and money on. Today's Unscience was produced by Gloria Mabuza and it is with music from Audio Lounge and Luxstock. Let's get into it. It's Unscience time. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Okay, level. Let's get into it. Okay, so it's winter in South Africa now and it's all chilly and cold. But have you ever wondered how people living in snow-dominated areas around the world survive on slipping snow? Snow is quite slippery. Thankfully, yes. I live in Pretoria where there is no <laughs> snow ever. But I I am not the most confident person on my feet in, you know, I'm pretty clumsy on a good day. <laughs> so, so I think on snow, it wouldn't be too great. Okay, so what I'm actually about to tell you is going to be great news for South Africans living in Drakensberg or Eastern Cape or any other areas in the country with annual winter snow. Sounds dramatic. <laughs> What's happening? Okay. So a German trauma surgeon uh, has uh, thingy, advised Germans to walk like penguins. Okay. Why would what? you want to walk like a penguin, right? This is to avoid slipping on pavements when freezing uh, temperatures and snow ap- appears in the winter season. Are you sure this this wasn't like published on the on the first of April? Because I feel like doctors are just like just having fun now, telling us to walk like penguins. It sounds more like a scene from you remember that movie Happy Feet? Yes. <laughs> With the dancing penguins. Yep. It does sort of sound like it. I feel like the doctors are going to be watching us like, look at those dumb people walking like penguins. Yeah. But anyway, it would be a funny sight, right? But an advisory has been published on a website of a German society of orthopedics and trauma surgeons that says that walking like these aquatic birds would actually help you not to slip. This means that when you're walking, you'll have to lean a little bit forward so that your center of gravity is centered like in front of you. Okay, I get that. And then the waddle will keep your center of gravity in front of your legs and will keep you upright. So by leaning forward, you keep yourself 
upright. Okay. Now here's for a little how to do for you, people who want to walk like a penguin. What you need to do is to spread your feet out slightly to increase your center of gravity and take small steps. <laughs> then you also need your hands out of your pockets because walking with your hands in your pockets will decrease your center of gravity and balance. Okay, this sounds hilarious in, in my head. I feel like I'm going to do this in, in the city Joburg just for fun. There doesn't even need to be snow. I just... <laughs> like on a random sunny day, start walking like a penguin. <laughs> yeah, just don't we all want to look like that? <laughs> okay, well, when humans walk normally, their body weight is actually sp- split almost evenly between both legs. And according to the surgeons, this increases their loss of balance and thus falling on slippery surfaces okay so that's what would normally happen if you walk like a human so penguins have something down yes they have that down and what i'm about to tell you is actually a little bit funny right um the funny thing is another piece of research that was conducted by timothy griffin in university of california showed that although penguins walk gracefully on ice on land they're quite an adorable mess. Listen, first of all, I'm not <laughs> sure they you would classify them as graceful uh, because even on yeah, ice, even on ice, they look a little bit funny, like <laughs> yeah. wobbledy wobbledy wobble. <laughs> but okay, I'm I'm intrigued. Okay, they usually move their bodies to and fro to shuffle one stubby little leg in front of the other. Okay, so I guess they kind of have have the, you know, we have the upper hand in this. At least we look graceful, we humans look graceful on land. Okay, people like seeing themselves as above everyone. So before <laughs> you start judging, because of that little cartoonish walk, um, it's actually quite an efficient walk for animals in the animal kingdom. At least uh, on ice. <laughs> okay, so basically you're saying humans would should like take a tutorial from, from penguins if you're planning to walk on anything slippery. Yes, basically. Call up your penguin friends and tell them to teach you how to walk like them. But then again, this knowledge gained from ping- penguins will provide novel insight into walking mechanisms for humans with increased lateral movements such as pregnant women and <laughs> obese individuals. No, guy. <laughs> I was with you on the slippery on the slippery <laughs> snow, but we cannot be giving medical advice to pregnant <laughs> ladies to walk like penguins. I know it doesn't sound right. Like you're carrying a baby in front of you. You're going to lean forward. Aren't you going to fall? But anyway, it's scientifically proven, so we got to go with it. Penguins have it. Okay. And adding on what uh, has been already said, the University of Utah and Iowa State University issued tips for walking safely in winter weather. Some of them include uh, wearing shoes with grip, walking at a little bit of a slower pace, and using handrails when using the stairs, when entering and exiting buildings. And yeah, I guess those are good tips if you don't want if you don't want to look like a penguin, which is nobody. I think everybody secretly wants to do a little waddle when they're you know walking into the <laughs> office. Waddle, waddle. <laughs> I mean, one of those days when you're feeling like being awkward, just walk in into a very 
serious meeting like a penguin like. yeah, right wobble de wob but I feel like you need the whole like hands by your side like little wings otherwise it's not real yeah right? just dress like a penguin then <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe that this is actually what scientists have said but I've got to, I've got to give it to you it does seem it does seem legit it does they've got the facts to prove it so why not believe them <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, your unusual and likely unscience for the day If you want to find penguins, down you go to the bottom of the earth at the South Pole. Antarctica is the place where you find the most penguins taking up space. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. You're still on the science inside, and now we get to the part where we look at the scientists behind the science. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Rudolf Berger, who is a physical geographer. His research focuses mainly on atmospheric processes, climatology, meteorology, and remote sensing. Yes, we're talking about the weather, but I promise you it's very interesting. He has carried out studies on interactions between aerosols and the atmosphere, reducing fuel burning emissions in South Africa and biomass burning in a larger sense. His expertise and findings on atmospheric research got him recognition by the Weather Modification Association, landing him the Weather Modification Field Meteorologist Distinguished Service Award last month in the United States. Dr. Berger is actually a former Wits University graduate and currently works at the School of Environmental Sciences and Development at Northwest University. He also plays an, an a very important role in the climatology research group of the Lequena weather radar. That's a high-end weather radar that was launched just earlier this year and it studies and measures storms and rainfall in its surrounding areas as well as assisting researchers by providing real-time data that significantly improves weather observation networks. That's what he works on but we want to find out both about his work and um, and himself as a scientist. Thank you so much, Dr. Berger, for joining us on the Science Inside. No problem. Um, and you can call me Rulof. That's fine. <laughs> well, we always love being casual here just to make science something that's more close to home. I want to talk to you about your work that really goes far beyond just predicting what the weather will be like the next day or, you know, is a major storm approaching. You've looked quite a lot into matters like air quality control and air quality management. Take us a bit into this field of research. What have you been working on? So um, I call myself a physical geographer and uh, the nice and fun thing about geographers is we get to stick our fingers into everybody's business. So um, that means if you listen to the kind of stuff we do, it sounds pretty broad. But in today's age, multidisciplinary type research is really avant-garde, you know. And that is exactly what geographers do. We typically look at big picture problems and then we approach it from a multidisciplinary point of view and typically we'll be the glue in the study so we'll work together with specialists from different fields and then uh, bring together their expertise and then we are the focus on the on the big problem right and that's why we, we do quite a 
a, a wide variety of stuff. So if you want more specifics, I can tell you a bit more specifically about the different projects we're busy with. So one, let's hone in on one particular project that I found very interesting. Our listeners may have heard of something called cloud seeding, which is a process that basically brings the rain. <laughs> so to say, and you've looked at whether this might be a possibility for South Africa, and I'm sure a lot of listeners' thoughts will immediately go to systems, uh, to places like Cape Town, where you know there's been a lot of a lot of need for rain. What have your findings? been around these kind of technologies and their availability or their their applicability for places like South Africa? Sure. So so this is a huge topic and I can talk for hours. I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and pre- be brief. But uh cloud seeding um research started uh, um just after the Second World War and there was one famous experiment where a company um in the US flew uh, with a big plane and they, they threw uh, dry ice onto a, a very specific kind of cloud and they, they drew the company's logo on the clouds and as they were flying the clouds rained out and, and they took a picture of this and it's this old grainy black and white picture but that st- sort of started this, this idea that we as humans can, can change uh, rainfall uh, patterns. And since then, there's been lots of uh, activities around the world. At some point, uh, there were more than 140 um, projects uh, in in different countries around the world trying to change cloud processes. And um, I've been fortunate to to visit many of these uh, projects. And I was also part of the tail end of the South African um, cloud seeding project that was called the National Precipitation Research Project which was done uh, in collaboration between the South African Weather Service and a company called CloudQuest and funded by the uh, Water Research Commission. And this was a groundbreaking project. Um, at the time, they, the, the, the results of this project was highly um, acclaimed around the world. And because, because of the, the very dramatic results, it was uh, reanalyzed by about three different groups independently and basically coming to the same conclusion. And that conclusion stands to this day, and that is that although we don't fully understand the mechanism yet, there seems to be uh, enough evidence to suggest that it might be possible to, to augment rainfall. Um, and and that, now, that now means the specific kind of rainfall that we get um, on the high south of South Africa. Mm. Um, in other parts of the world, they, they target other types of rainfall. Um, so each climate has a specific set of uh, rain-producing uh, processes, and therefore your, your techniques to try and modify needs to match the specific climate that you, that you experience. And some, in, in some climates, it's uh, much easier than in others. So, for example, in, in cold climates that experience lots of snow, there's been uh, even greater successes. Um, the one project that comes to mind is one that has been running in uh, Wyoming in the United States. And there they, they've had uh, very positive results over the last few years. Mm. And, and yet... If you're thinking about Cape Town... Right. Then... Uh, 
we, we, we haven't done any research in South Africa around Cape Town, but it's, it, it, it is feasible that, that it might be uh, something to look at, right? So it's not, a, a, it's not an easy question to answer, and it's not a definite yes, but it's a definitely maybe. Hmm. And who knows? We know that sometimes the the wheels of science can can turn quite slowly, and it might be an answer to future to future problems or future crises around around arid areas. A sure. different problem that is already quite uh, quite problematic and quite big around the world now, of course, is air pollution, especially yep. uh, you know taking climate change into into account. And you've done some research around um, around this and specifically trying to find some clues in into how we would reduce air pollution in South Africa. Sure. And, and, and hopefully you see the link there between the, on the one hand, we were trying to study what, what can we do to intentionally change uh, processes in the atmosphere. And, and, uh, and there's a natural link between us unintentionally changing processes. One, one example is climate change, but the other one is changing rainfall processes through air pollution. So that was, that was sort of the way we, we, we got into the problem of air pollution. And um, we, we did a project studying the interaction of air pollution and, and rain. Um, and then um, in the last few years, we, we, there's been a, a, a renewed focus from government on uh, understanding air pollution in South Africa, understanding the, the different sources that contribute to, to pollution, and then understanding the impacts. And uh, we've made quite a bit of pros, progress. We've done some... Um, studies in, in low-income areas. A few examples would be one uh, a township called uh, Quadela between Ermelo and uh, Betal. And then we, we've also worked in uh, Sasselberg, Sukunda, uh, in and around Joburg. So we've done quite a few studies in these areas. And once again, if you remember, I said as a geographer, we do this as a team of people. So we typically have social scientists that help, that help us uh, when we approach a, a community like this so that we do it responsibly and ethically. But also, mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to understand uh, the mechanisms be- behind some of these uh, pollution sources. Um, and, 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 and some of those involve humans. And so, th- therefore, you need the social scientists to, to guide you in, in this interactions. And then, on the other hand, you need to... The, the science scientists and engineers who, who uh, bring their complicated equipment and we would deploy uh, these whole range of uh, instruments trying to measure and quantify from a more cold clinical point of view what is the exact um, levels that people are exposed to. Mm. So, so the, the results of these studies is that uh, especially the poor of South Africa are exposed to very high levels of pollution Right. And um, that it has a dr- drastic impact on health. Um, so, so in, in collaboration with social scientists, we've been testing different ways of trying to see if we can address some of these. One of the, one example I can mention is that in in many of the uh, uh, low-income areas on the high felt, solid fuel burning is one of the primary primary sources of energy. 
And what would typically happen is if it, on the cold winter nights, uh, people have to find some kind of solid fuel to heat their, their house. And the fact that they have very poorly insulated and poorly built houses aggravates this problem. Mm. So we, we had a project where we tried to see what would be the impact if we went and insulated people's houses. So a small little uh, township of around 1,000 households, we went and we insulated every house that we could find and then making measurements in and outside of temperatures and making measurements of pollution in and outside of households, we we were trying to see what the impact would be. And uh, the one impact was drastic redu- uh, reduction in exposure to extreme cold and extreme warm conditions in the houses, which already has a huge health benefit. But then also some indications that there's an improvement in... Um, Inequality. Right. So that's the kind of stuff we're working on. You have worked on, and you are working on, some incredible things in the field. Really trying to find very practical solutions to problems that I think feel so so hopeless to a, to a lot of people, like air pollution. And it's very um, it's very encouraging to to hear your work. We've been talking to Dr. Rulof Berger, um, who's a physical geographer currently at um, at uh, Northwest University. Thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but it's been an interesting conversation. You are still on the science inside. After this, we say goodbye. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Lebo, today on the show we've had all kinds of things from waddling like penguins. My favorite. (laughs) To where our medicine comes from and all of the scientific processes that goes into one small nyana pill. And the cost and time that goes into all of that. Your little panado has gone through the most to reach your little tongue. I'm definitely, I definitely have a lot more respect for all medication now. Um, But it's been a good show. It really has. And thanks to all our guests featured on the show, including Dr. Rulof Berger, Dr. Nicholas Lister, Professor Kelly Chibali, and Alison Dyer. Our team behind the scenes is, of course, our production team, Bridget LePere, Harmony Malefi, and Gloria Mabuza, and tech, as always, by Kutluano Sarame. And you can catch us on our podcast on podcastvids.journalism.co.za forward slash science. And you can check us out on our social media and share your stories with us on Facebook as The Science Inside. And you can also tweet us at VowFM. I also want to jump in there and say we are on iTunes. So if you don't want to find the podcast on the website, you can find us on iTunes, which is very new and very exciting. You've been listening to Lebohang Madisha and myself, Alna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Join us again for more weird and wonderful science next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on PowerFM 88.1.
the Science Inside Podcast.